Well, big thank you to the music team for leading us in song this morning. Wonderful songs, I think, hopefully to unite our hearts, but also to prepare us for the text we'll be looking at today. We are going to be talking about truth this morning, Uh, not just talking truth, hopefully, but talking about truth. And to prepare us for that, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 119. Our reading this morning will be from Psalm 119, not all of Psalm 19. Psalm 119, but from Psalm 119, if your kids got your Bibles, if you kind of hold it up and you try to open it right in the dead center, that's about where Psalm 119 is. You can get pretty close. And we'll be turning to verse 57 that says heth or het above it. Uh, That's the Hebrew letter that every verse in this section begins with in the original. And if you're able, would you stand with me and we will read together verses 57 to 64. The word of God says this, the Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you. Because of your righteous ordinances, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Would you pray with me? Father, you are our portion. Besides you, we would desire that we would desire nothing on earth. We promise, Father, as is the best of our ability to keep your words, and yet we know that this is a promise that is is in vain without the work of your Holy Spirit within us, without your grace to sustain us. And so we ask that you would do that work within us that will cause us to be like your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for bringing us together into the fellowship of this church that we may be a companion of those gathered here that fear you. We thank you for such gatherings taking place around our city this morning and indeed around the world as you continue to build your people because of your loving kindness that fills the earth. And so give us now a heart soft to your word and eager to apply it for your glory and because we love your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a question, and that question is this. What is faith? What is faith? And uh, some of you immediately go into Hebrews, assurance of things hoped for, convictions of things not seen, and that is the correct answer. But if you ask most people in our world, what does a word mean, where are they going to go? Dictionary, potentially Webster's, exactly. That's where we go to find the meaning of the words we use in the English language. And as it turns out, dictionaries can be very interesting. If you don't believe me, you can read a book called The Professor and the Madman, The History of the Oxford English Dictionary. It's more interesting than you might think. But here's something fascinating. Because dictionaries tend to reflect not only the meaning of a word, but the change in meanings of words over time. And there's a real key mistake 
that has happened in our culture, in our English understanding of the word faith over time, and I want to see if we can pick it up. If you go to dictionary.com, not right now, but if you go to dictionary.com on your phones or on your computer and you look up faith, you will read this as the top three definitions. Confidence or trust in a person or thing. Second, belief that is not based on proof. Third, belief in God or in the doctrines or teachings of religion. Now I want you to invite, invite you to jump into a time capsule and go with me back to the 1913 edition of Webster's Dictionary. If you had been you know, getting ready to do your paper, you, you elementary students, and you needed to look up faith in the dictionary, this is what you would have read. Top three definitions. Number one, belief. The assent of the mind to the truth of what is declared by another, resting solely and implicitly on his authority and veracity, reliance on testimony. Two, the assent of the mind to the statement or proposition of another on the ground of the manifest truth of what he utters, firm and earnest belief on probable evidence of any kind, especially in regard to important moral truth. Number three, theological, the belief in the historic truthfulness of the scripture narrative and the supernatural origin of its teachings, sometimes called historical and speculative faith, the belief in the facts and truth of the scriptures with a practical love of them, especially that confiding and affectionate belief in the person and work of Christ, which affects the character and life and makes a man a true Christian, called a practical evangelical or saving faith. Did you notice there's a little difference? (laughs) It's almost like somebody took the word and rotated it 180 degrees in the dictionary. And did you see the center of that rotation? The separation of faith from truth. The separation of belief from the words, the sayings, the propositions that are to be the basis of that belief. The separation of faith from evidence and proof. And that is a a difference that is not a struggle that's recent in, in history. In fact, that is a difference that goes all the way back to our passage this morning. And this morning I want us to look at how we can be free indeed. And we're going to discover that freedom comes by a kind of faith that you can profess on the outside but miss on the inside. And so I want to begin this morning, if you've got kids got your little outlines, your first blanks are find security. How do we find security in freedom? And this comes from verses 31 to 32 in our passage this morning. It says this, John chapter 8, I should mention. We're back in John 8 now. So if you uh, still are there in Psalms, you can flip over to John chapter 8. And we will pick up in verse 31. There we go. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus is talking to those who had just believed in him, as our passage said last week, as Ben preached, 
those who had heard his light of the world discourse and had responded in belief. He's addressing them, but as we're about to see, this demonstration of belief on the outside does not always mean that they really get it on the inside. And this is a problem that we've already seen in the book of John. If you remember back in John chapter 2, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. The people saw what Jesus was doing on the outside, and they professed, I want to be on team Jesus on the outside. But Jesus knew they had not heard his words and did not believe him on the inside. And so Jesus now responds to this massive uprising of belief, not by rebuking what he knows is in their heart, but by teaching us something really special what it really takes to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be one who has him as their master, as their teacher, one that they follow and want to be like, is something we talk about all the time. Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. But what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, notice Jesus gives us three things in that passage that can be accomplished in our lives. The first is proof that we are truly disciples of his, a confidence of who we are in Christ. Second, that we will know the truth and not just knowledge about the truth, but to experience it, to really get the reality of truth. And third, that truth then will set us free. It will make us free. But all three of those wonderful things are contingent on one condition. And what is that condition? If you, what? Continue in my word. That is the heart of all true Christian discipleship. It is not the extent of it. Following Christ involves many things, indeed all of our lives. But the heart, the thing that you cannot do without in being a disciple of Jesus Christ is to continue in, and that means to abide in, to dwell in, to live in the word of Christ. Not just be excited about change, not just to feel what Jesus feels, to hear what he says and believe it and remain in it. A couple quick lessons as we get ready to move on. Truth alone sets us free. Truth alone sets us free. Truth defines being a disciple. Truth defines what it is to understand reality. Truth alone sets us free. And we need to notice who's doing the work here. Jesus doesn't say, I'll give you my truth and armed with my truth, what great things you will do. You will deliver yourself. You will liberate yourself. No, he says, you will be liberated by the truth. It is, as God's word tells us, living and active, and it accomplishes its work through the truth incarnated, Jesus Christ, and the truth inscripturated, the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And so Christians do not say, look what I did with the truth. We say, look what the truth did with me. Secondly, then, a true disciple cannot neglect the word. 
A true disciple cannot neglect the word of Christ. It's an oxymoron. You can't say, oh, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. We have this great relationship. I think I'm a good person. We're doing good things. I expect to go to heaven someday. I just don't read my Bible. I don't really care what it says because it's confusing. It's hard. I'm not sure I agree with all that stuff that's in there. Jesus says, well, then you are not truly my disciple. You do not know the truth. And therefore, why would you think you're free? It's built around the word of Christ. And we must take note of that because the freedom Christ offers here is freely given. He didn't charge like you have to pay extra to get into the Jesus portal and access his Patreon account so you can get the inside knowledge and that kind of stuff. The freedom Christ offers is freely given, but it can be forfeited. Just like anybody ever had a cool coupon, you're like, oh, I can't wait to use this coupon, and then you realize, oops, it expired. Rats. Over the next two weeks, we are going to see a case study in this dialogue Jesus is having with this crowd of believers that demonstrate how easy it is to miss the freedom that Christ freely offers. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is the first three interactions Jesus has with his audience demonstrating how to fall short of freedom. If you're taking your notes this morning, younger folks especially, those are your next blanks. Don't want you to miss your blanks. That never goes away, even our youth, if you miss a blank. It's like, back it up. And I'm pretty notorious for skipping over them. How to fall short of freedom. The first way you can do that is by trusting your comfort, trusting your comfort, trusting the fact that you feel fine. They answered in verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. And so they begin by responding to Jesus saying, hey, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never yet been enslaved to anyone. So what are you talking about with this freedom business? And notice right off the bat, they're demonstrating exactly what Jesus was talking about. If you are my true disciples, you will listen to my word and you will continue in it. I don't believe that. First thing they say is, no, that's not true. We believe you, Jesus, just not the next thing that came out of your mouth. And they retreat to Abraham. And that's that's always the reflex of the Jewish people, right? Abraham is sort of that cornerstone of their worldview, Abraham, his life, the covenants that God made with Abraham, that's the basis of how they view reality. And they're saying, hey, we're descendants of Abraham. We are, we're the people that God has chosen. We, we have special favor with God. We've never been enslaved by anyone. And this passage has kind of baffled Christians through the ages because they're like, well, what about the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians? and the Macedonians, and the Egyptians again, and the Syrians, and the Romans. Right? This is a people that's lived almost their entire existence under the, 
the oppression and enslavement of somebody. And so people have speculated maybe that what, what they're talking about is that on the inside, like you might make me sit on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. We are proud Jewish people, free in the eyes of God because of his special favor that he's shown us. We're fine. Everything's fine. We're free. What are you talking about? And Jesus then says, let me tell you exactly what I'm talking about. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Truly, truly grabbing our attention, saying, hey, guys, don't miss this. Those who commit sin or literally all the doers of sin are slaves of sin. And that's important language. That's, a, that's language that we need to use more. We like to talk about our sin the way we talk about our sicknesses. We have addictions and struggles and we're suffering and we're this and we're that. And the Bible says, no, you're not sick with sin like it's just something that's happening to you. You are a slave of sin. It is a master over us. And because they are slaves of sin, the assumptions they've made about their relationship with God are wrong. And Jesus highlights this in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. The Jews were resting in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. And so they just sort of imagined themselves loafing around the house of God, chilling on the couch, eating God's grapes and enjoying his unending favor towards them because, hey, we're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus burst that bubble by saying, no, you are not free men lounging about the house of God. You are slaves. You are slaves. And he takes that sad fact and draws a critical implication from it. In any household in which there are slaves and sons, one is permanent and one is not. The slave has no inheritance. The slave has no rights. The slave has no permanence. He could be here today and gone tomorrow. The son, on the other hand, does have an inheritance. He does have rights. He does have the expectation of remaining in that home forever. Slaves neither have nor can grant freedom. Sons are free and can grant freedom. In fact, that word Jesus used for the son remains forever, that's the same word as we saw earlier when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples to show that you're truly my disciples, continue in my word. That word continue is the same word as remain here. And he's pulling that together. We're free, exclaimed the Jews. No, you're not, says Jesus. And only I can fix that. Because you need to have an interaction with the Son who has the right and power to free you. So that proof to Jesus offered to demonstrate that he is speaking with slaves of sin and not with free men. Well, he gives that in 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Hey, I'm not talking about physical lineage here. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. This is the evidence of their false faith. Remember, these guys were just identified as believing in Jesus, but already look at what has changed. Just a few verses ago, they had all believed in Jesus. Now they're already contemplating in their hearts, we've got to kill this guy. 
What a radical shift has taken place. And for what reason? Why? Why do they want to do this to Jesus? Well, it goes back to what Jesus said is that mark of true disciples of Christ and true disciples thus of God. It's because the word of Jesus has no place in them. Literally, this says here, my word is not advancing in you. It's bouncing off you, not bounding through you like it should. It's not growing. This is where Jesus is now going to press the issue one level further and really make them mad. Because the fact that the word is bouncing off of them is a symptom of a deeper problem. And it's going to be a personal and hurtful but very true and necessary thing for them to understand. Look at verse 38. I speak the things which I have seen from my Father. Therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your Father. Jesus has made it a constant thing in his ministry to point to all that he does as being from his heavenly Father. And now he's expanding and saying, you know what? I'm not the only one who does what he does because it's from his Father. Everybody does what they do because of their alignment with their true Father. And so whereas you can tell who my Father is by what I'm doing, you can tell who your Father is by what you're doing. Wow. This conversation has gotten really uncomfortable really fast. And they're going to respond very defensively here in just a moment. But a couple quick lessons before we get there. And the first is this. Feeling fine is not the same as fine. Feeling fine is not the same as being fine. I feel fine. And then you keel over dead. This happens. Feeling fine is not the same as being fine. And that means, as Christians, we never want to take our confidence that we are good disciples of Jesus Christ because I feel good. I go to church, I do this, I do that, I wake up, have my cup of coffee, read my little daily devotional, I feel happy. That must mean God's happy with me, I'm happy with him, life is good. That's not how it works. The only confidence we can have that we are disciples of Jesus Christ is that we continue in his word. We love him and therefore we love what he says. And that actually might be a really hopeful thing. Because it also means feeling not fine is not the same as being not fine. There are a lot of times in life where we are like Paul in Romans 7 where we just want to say, wretched man that I am. I'm not doing any of this right. I'm I'm walking in sin and not doing what I want to be doing. God has got to seriously regret ever having tried to make me one of his children. Here's the thing. Our lack of external conformity to the law of God is not ultimately what defines our relationship to him as a disciple. Do we continue in the word of Christ? That can be so comforting. Do you love Jesus? Do you love what he says? Do you cling to it so tightly that it grieves you that your life doesn't conform all the time? That's a good sign. 
And that means I may not feel okay. I may feel wretched and miserable and unworthy and undeserving. And all of that be true. And yet I am still a disciple of Jesus Christ and still free. Because it's not tied to our feelings. It's tied to his word. That's good news. So you can miss the freedom Christ offers just by being comfortable. But you can also miss the freedom that Christ offers by trusting not only in just the fact that you feel fine, but trusting in your history, where you come from, your pedigree, the people around you. You see this in verses 39 to the first part of 41. They answered and said to him, Who's this father that you're talking about? Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. So you are doing the deeds of your father. Yikes. Pretty straightforward in this opening here. They're saying, hey, you told us we're descendants of Abraham. That means, yeah, right? He's, he's our father. So what's this father you're talking about? And then Jesus responds to them by giving us one of the most important themes in all of Scripture. And that is the theme of inherited nature. The way of putting it is like reproducing after like. Everything reproducing after its own kind. And so apple trees grow apples which fall to the ground and create new apple trees. And cats give birth to kittens. You find a litter of kittens, you're not saying, hey, are there any dogs around? You're saying, where are the cats? from which these kittens come. Things reproduce after their kind. And this is not a principle that just holds true in the physical world. Throughout Scripture, we're constantly reminded this is a principle that holds true in the spiritual world. Things reproduce after their spiritual kind. And so Jesus is telling the Jews, if you're from the line of Abraham, the spiritual people of faith from Abraham, act like it. Bear the same kind of fruit he did. What was the defining fruit in Abraham's life? It was that when God spoke to him, he listened and obeyed. Right? That's the defining feature of his life. And what an almost ironic contrast there is here. In the Old Testament, God spoke directly to Abraham at certain times as when he called him out of Ur. And there are other times God sent the angel of the Lord to go speak to Abraham. And most theologians understand that the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is like saying here, hey, I remember when I went and talked to Abraham, he listened to what I said and he obeyed. And now I'm talking to you and you want to kill me. That's not what Abraham did. So are you sure he's your father? Because you are spiritually too opposed. Wow. The conclusion here is inescapable. That's not what Abraham did. Therefore, Abraham cannot be your spiritual father. A couple quick lessons here. First is this. God's promises are tied to Christ, not Christians. What does that mean? We can't point back to any other person, any other heritage, any other legacy and say, this is where my confidence comes, that I am free in Christ. Some of you have been blessed and you're a second, third, fourth generation Christian. 
You're like, see, our whole family's been Christian as far back as we can remember. That doesn't make you a spiritual inheritor of that tradition until you love Christ and you love his word and he is your savior. There is no person that can take the place of Jesus Christ as the object of our faith. And there is no message but his words that we must believe and trust if we are to be his disciples. God's promises are tied to Christ, not Christians. And secondly, then we need to look at our heart and ask ourselves, how confident should I be that I am in the line of Christ based off of the fruit I'm bearing? And we're not talking about perfection. We're also not talking about doing good stuff to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. When the apple grows on the branch, it doesn't turn the tree into an apple tree. It reveals that the tree is an apple tree. But we are called in Scripture to examine the fruit of our lives and say, does this fruit give evidence that God is my Father? And if not, there's reason to do some heart examination. So what fruit is our heart producing? It's not okay to say that we're okay spiritually because we feel okay. We must abide in the word of Christ. It's not okay to point to followers of Jesus we are associated with or with the tradition of being in the church. We must ask, do we bear the fruit of one controlled by the word of Christ? And there's one last objection this morning that we're going to look at before the conversation really devolves into name-calling and chaos, which we'll see next week. And that is this, trusting our confession. Trusting our confession. In the second half of verse 41, they, just, they are really getting fired up here. They said, we're, we're not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Wow, some interesting things happening here. First, they are concluding that Jesus is calling them illegitimate children of Abraham. We're descendants from Abraham. He's like, yeah, really? No, he's our father, not by how you're acting. And so they're saying, you're, you're calling us illegitimate descendants of Abraham? And they're objecting. They're like, we are as genuine Jews as you get. They're probably also, though, here, I think, kind of on the sly, insulting Jesus. You remember back in verse 19, they had already begun to count, where is your father, Jesus? Right? All the suspicion that had surrounded his birth and a lot of rumors that Jesus' birth was illegitimate. They're saying, hey, you really want to go down the road of who's your true daddy? But finally, they're playing the trump card here. Okay, you want to debate Abraham? Let's talk about who my, our real father is, God. And they're going to argue this based off of the unique special relationship that God had with his people. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Coming out of the Feast of Booths, they would have just been reading these passages. Jeremiah 31.9, I am a father to Israel. They're saying God's our father. So, so let's leave Abraham aside. Let's, let's stick with God. Jesus just comes back, goes right after their heart with this. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, 
but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Those who love God love those God sends. It's like saying, I love somebody, but I hate all their letters. That doesn't happen. If you love somebody, you love the messages they send and the messenger that that message comes through. The Jews here are just demonstrating that the strong love of their heart is not for God. And so he follows up with a question. What can explain this lack of understanding that they have for what he's saying? Why don't they respond with love to the messenger of God? Why can't they recognize on the lips of Christ the words of God? And the answer is right there. It's because they cannot hear with understanding the word of Jesus. They cannot. They are incapable of it. They are not in a right relationship with God because of their comfortable religion, their divinely blessed history, their proud profession of knowing God. They lack the very ability to comprehend the words of God coming from the Son of God because ultimately God is not their Father. And then Jesus... I see, I think... Where's Blake? There he is. Jesus puts the pig on the table. In verse 44, he lays this out in all of its shocking, ugly reality. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is not truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. If it walks like a devil and it talks like a devil, then its father is probably the devil. Their devils are the devil's desires. They want to kill because they are of the spiritual line of the great murderer. They do not stand in the truth, but reject it because they are from the one who also has no truth. They lie effortlessly about Christ because like the father lies, father of lies, it is in their inherited spiritual nature to do so. The crowd has been thinking, we can't believe Jesus because there's no way that what he is saying in true is, is true. And Jesus says, no, you got it backwards. It's because I'm speaking truth to you that you cannot understand what I'm saying. If I was lying, you'd get it. It's an inherited spiritual inability. And so you can almost feel that surge of anger, the shaking of heads, the clenching of fists at these words. But Jesus has one more point to make before they respond. And that comes in verse 46 when he says, which one of you accuses me or convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. What a bold and public challenge. Only the Son of God could have ever made this with a straight face. He says, look, I'll prove it to you. Can anybody point to anything ever in my life that was not perfectly righteous? Anybody. And you know they're thinking hard, right? They're thinking hard. Somebody here has got to know that one time you yelled at your mom, you know, when you guys were coming to Jerusalem for something. That one time you were in the synagogue and you got your verses mixed up and you forgot something. Something. 
Jesus says, I speak truth to you. And my entire life is an irrefutable proof of the fact that I am a righteous truth teller. I'm not just going to start spouting blasphemy and error now. So why is it that when you know I am a righteous truth teller, you won't believe me? It's because over here is God and the righteous truth tellers and all of his children. And over here is the liar and the truth hater and all of his children. And you're in one of those buckets. Yikes. A sobering conclusion to our text this morning, but it is also one that points us back and reminds us, I think with hope, to where we started. What we love is what we are. What we love is what we are. Not what we profess, not what we say, not what we do. Those things may all be reflections of what we are, but what we really are is what we love with that deep, controlling affection of the soul. Christian, this morning, if you say, I'm a mess, everything's crazy, but I love Jesus and I love his word, rest in that. Rest in that. Jesus loves you. He's not embarrassed to call you his brother, nor is the father embarrassed to call you his child. If we love him and trust his word, Secondly, Satan is present wherever truth isn't. Satan is present wherever truth isn't. Satan always wants to work in alternate realities. So even while we're young, you children, learn to tell the truth even when it gets you in trouble. Value that highly above everything else, that I will speak truth Always, no matter what the consequences are, so that my relationship with people around me will always be a real relationship. And guess what? That'll translate to your relationship with your Heavenly Father. That we can always speak truthfully with Him as well. And the good news is God always, always, always speaks the truth with us. We're a Bible church. Because the gospel is the good news, the good word that Jesus Christ has satisfied the law of God in his life, has satisfied the debt of sinners in his death, and has satisfied all doubts in his resurrection. The Bible is not competition with our relationship with God. The Bible is the communion of our relationship to God. If we love Jesus, we will love his word today and tomorrow and forever. And that's what Jesus is calling us to continue in my word, which brings us to communion this morning. Encourage you to start preparing your elements because let's face it, these things are hard. In communion, we repeat back the words which Christ gave us in ritual. We repeat back our unity, testifying to the power of the truth. We repeat back in faith, believing those words to be true. We repeat back in hope, expecting that God will use them to bring others to the truth as well. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, then we hear and we believe that when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it 
and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take the bread together? And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let us take that together as well. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, you are holy. And we are not. And we confess this morning that apart from your work, we cannot hear your words with understanding. That there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks for God. But you have sought for us. And you have sent your Son into this world. And we believe in your Son, the Word made flesh, that to this day none can ever convict him of sin, for he was perfectly righteous. That there was no flaw in his sacrifice, lest you would have not brought him back from the grave, but that in his perfect satisfaction of your holy wrath, we can find our ultimate freedom and rest in it. Thank you for the chance to remember this together as your gathered body. May we take great joy that as we continue in your words, you will continue to perfect the work in us that you have begun, all for your glory, not to our credit, but in a way that is so inevitable that we can relax in our soul even as we strive with our mind and our bodies in obedience. Grant us this grace as you have granted us all graces freely in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.